Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. All right. Well, I am uh, pretty excited about today's message. Um, If you're new or you haven't been here in the last few weeks, we are in the middle of a series that we've done every year called Heroes and Villains. And really the whole point of this message series is we have been exploring stories that we see throughout the Bible and the characters who are in those stories and just sort of examining them in our lives. But what we're challenging all of us to do is to not look at the stories that we're reading as just stories and not look at the characters in them as just characters. Instead, what we really want to do is look at them from the perspective of them that these stories and these characters are us. And that's the beauty of of the Bible, is that all throughout Scripture, we see ourselves as people, we see ourselves as how we behave and the the lessons that we go through and the things that we learn, and we see them. And so what we really want to do through this series is we want to ask the question, what might God say to us through what we're reading. And so we began our series by talking about Cain and Abel in the Old Testament. And last week, uh, Pastor Heather preached about the, the Lady of Ruth in the Old Testament as well. Well, today we're moving into the New Testament with a villain, if you will. Some people wouldn't necessarily say he's a villain, but you'll see why I think so. We're going to be talking about Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. How many of you ever heard of this guy, Pontius Pilate? So I kind of wrote on a, uh, on a post that we, uh, for our newsletter that comes out every week, and, and I was advertising that we're going to be talking about this guy this week. And one of the things that I said was, who is this guy and why do we know his name? Because he's really only in Scripture for a very small piece of time, a very small portion of Scripture, and yet he had a very big impact on our faith. So today we're going to be talking about this guy, Pontius Pilate. Now, most of us probably know, if you've heard of him, that that Pilate is famous for his interactions with Jesus just before his crucifixion. Um, Maybe you didn't know some of these details, is that Pilate was the Roman governor in the province of Judea. So Israel was broken up into states or provinces similar to where we live or any other type of a country. In the province of Judea, he was the governor of that area, which is where Jerusalem is located, okay? So Jerusalem is the most populated part of Israel, and he was the Roman governor of that area. And he served for only 10 years there, from AD 26 to 36. Now, during that time... Pilate could be described as a dispassionate leader who really didn't like the Jewish people. So Israel was full of a bunch of Jewish people, but the Romans occupied the area. And Pilate didn't like the Jews. In fact, he kind of had disdain for them. And so there were a lot of... um, There were a lot of uh, run-ins that he had with them. In fact, there were several times where people died because of some of the activities that he had, his sort of heavy hand in trying to stop revolts. There were revolutionaries going on. A lot of those types of things were happening. So Pilate would be described as a dispassionate leader who really didn't care for them. In fact, he was probably hated by the Jews because of a lot of those types of things. And by the time that we get to the account of Jesus and Pontius Pilate, We find a man who was jaded by religious hypocrisy. He had spent most of his career dealing with um, the authorities uh, of the Jewish people who would act one way and who would talk a different way. And so in this way, Jesus and Pilate actually had a lot in common to where how they viewed the leadership of the Jewish people at the time. So he was jaded by religious uh, hypocrisy, 
but he was also conflicted. So by the time we see Jesus and Pilate in the story we're going to read, he was conflicted with, with his, the pressure on his shoulders and with the authority and the political climate. And so when we finally see Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18, I believe, is where we're going to start reading today, we pick up the story right after Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the uh, popular moment where Jesus is praying and his disciples fall asleep and Jesus is, is, is praying before his father and he's saying, if there's any other way, you know, take this cup from me, but I'll do what you want. You know, like a very human moment for Jesus. And we see this story, and then Jesus gets arrested uh, and then taken to the Jewish authorities, to the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, to be put on trial. And this is where we're going to pick up the story, and we're going to start learning a little bit about, about Pontius Pilate. Now, if you guys have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 18. This is the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we have free ones for you. So every week I'm going to keep saying this because we want to make sure everybody has a Bible. Uh, at the Connection Center or down here in the front, free Bibles. Please don't leave without taking one. And also, if you're new to your faith and you want to know how to grow in your faith in Jesus, we have these books. They're free. They're called Learning to Follow Jesus. It's just a seven-day small guide to beginning the principles of what it means to follow Christ. I want to have, uh, get those in everybody's hands. They're all at the Connection Center. John 18. We're going to start reading about Pontius Pilate. And we're going to ask the Lord, God, what would you say to us through the life of Pontius Pilate? Verse 28 is where we're going to begin reading. It says this, Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, who was the high priest, okay, he'd been arrested, taken to the high priest's home, and was basically put on a private, like, tribune, or tribu uh, tri tribunal, sorry, uh, where he was on trial with, for the religious leaders, okay? Caiaphas was that guy. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. You have to understand that the, uh, that the Jewish people, the law, the law of Moses, forbid them to hang out with Gentiles. Gentiles were anybody who wasn't, uh, who wasn't Jewish. So if you're a Harry Potter fan, that's like a muggle, okay? They're, they're not magic people. So in this case, the Jewish people, they're not, they're called Gentiles. The Jewish people were not allowed to hang out with them. So for them to walk into the home or the, the place of business of someone who was not Jewish would defile them and their big ceremony, their big holiday, Passover, was coming at this point. So, and this is part of the hypocrisy that, that um, Pilate saw, is that you want me to do your business, your dirty work for you, but you're not willing to even come into my home, okay? So that's part of this jaded thing that we see for him. So his accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate their holiday Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, what is your charge against this man? And in the next few verses, I just want you to pick up on the tone, the sort of the banter that's going on between Pilate and the crowd and then Pilate and Jesus. And you can see the tension, right? So Pilate says, what is your charge against this man? And they said, well, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. And he says, well, then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate said to them. Well, only the Romans are permitted to execute someone the Jewish leaders replied. And Pilate, I'm thinking, is like, oh, wow, this escalated rather quickly, okay? And then it says in parentheses, this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way that he would die. Uh, there's a passage of scripture that, that Jesus said that he would be handed over and crucified by the, by the Gentiles, okay? So that's what that's referring to. It's just kind of saying, hey, and by the way, Jesus was right, okay? So then verse 33, then Pilate then goes back inside the headquarters, and he called for Jesus to be brought to him personally, 
Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. And Jesus replied, is this your own question? Or did others tell you about me? I love how Jesus always flips the script, right? He always gets to the point. He always gets to the root. Is this your own question? Do you really want to know who I am? Or do you just hear about me? Well, am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. And if it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so then you are a king? And Jesus responded, you say that I'm a king. But actually, I was born and I came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And then Pilate asks, what is truth? And so from this place, the story continues in a familiar fashion. Pilate goes out to the crowd several times and he says to them, I have not found any fault in this guy. I mean, you know, he might be nuts, he might be crazy, but he doesn't deserve the death penalty. That's basically what Pilate was saying. And then several times the crowd doesn't listen. They don't like his decision and they're pushing and they're demanding for Jesus to be put to death. So then several times Pilate returns to speak with Jesus personally and tries to talk to him and understand. And each time he finds no guilt in Jesus, but the crowd is relentless. The crowd would not stop. And so they keep pushing and they demand death. They demand crucifixion for Jesus. And the passage simply ends in chapter 19, verse 16, in this sort of unceremonious way. But I think it's, it's such a punctuation mark on this whole passage. It says, then... Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. It was just like, okay, fine, right? Like that's, that's sort of the, the, the tone that's here. It's all of this dialogue, all of this banter, all of this discussion and, and pressure, and then finally here. Like that's, that's all that it says. Now, it's interesting because in Matthew 27, so in a different account, so this, this account is actually found throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And in Matthew's account, the famous moment where Pontius Pilate then washes his hands, he comes out in front of all of them, and he gets a bowl of water, and he symbolically and ritually, ritualistically washes his hands, and he says to them, essentially, I will not be held responsible for this. I am not guilty because of this. But here's the thing. I don't think that we can let Pilate off that easily. I don't think that just because he washes his hands in some symbolism, that that means that he's not guilty. What do I mean by that? And why do I say that? It's because I think that just because we don't think that something is right, or conversely, if we don't involve ourselves in something that isn't wrong, doesn't mean that we're not guilty for it. Because we have a responsibility to do something. Pilate didn't think that Jesus deserved death. That's pretty clear. He said it so many times. Pilate didn't think that Jesus deserved to be put to death, but he allowed it to happen anyway. And on the other side of that, ultimately, he didn't stand up for what was right, and it resulted in an innocent man being killed. And so I feel like after reading this passage and, and the other accounts that we see in, in the other Gospels, there are some questions that that I feel like I'm left with, and maybe you feel the same way. Like, if Jesus wasn't guilty, why did Pontius Pilate allow him to be crucified? Another one is, didn't, did Pontius Pilate not care about the difference between right and wrong? Did he even know there was a right and wrong? What was the reason that Pilate tried to actually reason with the crowd? I mean, if he was going to end up allowing Jesus to be crucified, why bother trying to convince the crowd in the first place? 
And ultimately, what can we take away from this? What does God want to say to us today in 2017 from the story of Pontius Pilate? And I think the key to this passage is found at the end of verse 18, or chapter 18, the one that we read in verse 37, 38. I'm going to read this again. And it should be on the screen here. Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus responded, you say that I'm a king, but actually I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And then Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? And I think that that was more of a statement than it was a question. A statement that reflected the culture of Pilate's time and one that really defines the concept of truth in our personal time right now in the, in the world that we live in. I think that when Pilate was asking what is truth, I think that's the same thing as him saying there is no truth. Pilate was living in a world in a time where you could believe whatever you wanted to believe and that your opinion was yours and it could be your truth but not the truth, right? And that sounds a lot like the world that we live in today. Like, don't tell me what, what I should believe. Don't tell me what, what's right and what's wrong. Like, I'm going to decide for myself and truth is relative. That's, that's what Pilate essentially is saying when he asks this question. What is truth? You said that you came here to be the truth, to tell the truth, and those who love me will know that, that I, what I'm saying is true. And Pilate responds like, what the heck are you talking about? There's no such thing. And Jesus was trying to represent, trying to tell them, no, listen, if you want to know who I am, so, so you are a king? Like he's just, he's like a parrot. He's just, Pilate is just, is just repeating and regurgitating what he's hearing on the news from, from his people that he hears in his area, from his little, uh, little individuals in, his, in his, his circle who tell him what the Jews are saying about Jesus. He doesn't really want to know who Jesus is. He doesn't really want to care. In fact, he's probably dreaming about getting back to Rome one day, right? And Pilate is going, I'm sick of all of this. I don't know anything. And this guy tells me that he is the truth that he represents everything that is true and that what he says is true, and Pilate misses it. He goes, there's no such thing. But Pilate was blinded by the lie of his culture that there isn't truth. But the problem is, is that without truth, there can be no certainty. There can be no guide. There can be no touch point. Lack of truth breeds at best indecision and at worst destructive behavior. And that's exactly what happened to Pontius Pilate. His refusal to believe the truth existed or to believe in the truth that was presented by Jesus led him to indecision and ultimately to the destruction of a person. Because of the vacancy of truth in Pilate's mind, he stood powerless against an angry mob. And we see that all the time in our modern society of people who want to stand up for something that they think is right, but if they're not sure that it's right, then they ultimately cave. And this happens all the time. Without truth, there is no authority. And we see that very thing today. The erosion of truth in our culture has led to a culture where lies are celebrated and personal opinions and beliefs reign supreme. I mean, this is literally what I see as I look around in our culture. It has become normal for us to cave to the mob mentality because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. And then we wonder why our world has gotten so ugly. And I, I, I was, as I was studying this week, I, I was reminded of Romans chapter 1, verse 25. And it's this interesting passage in this verse. It says this. It says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. And I think when Paul, the apostle Paul was writing Romans and he wrote that, he was telling the story of what happened to humanity. 
that at some point we decided to stop listening to God. We stopped, we stopped wanting to know what his truth was. We stopped wanting to live our life based on the principles that he created, the physics of God's universe, if you will, and traded God's truth for lies about what life was supposed to be like and the fun that we wanted to have. And I feel like that verse echoed through the conversation with with Pilate and Jesus and echoes all the way to today where I look around and I think, really? This is the world that we live in? This is the world we've created for ourselves? Like, where we just think that that there, we, we have no idea of what's right and what's wrong and, and have no idea of how to get to where we're supposed to be going. And I think about this verse that we traded the truth for a lie. And Pilate bought into that lie. So what is the answer? I guess the question is, like, what is it that we're supposed to take from all this? What is the answer? Or maybe, maybe we should take Pilate's own question and flip it. What is truth? What is truth? I'd like to read some passages from the Bible today, just three verses, and I think that we're going to find it. Now, I want you to know, I'm just going to say it, it's pretty obvious. I believe that God is the source of truth. I believe that he created the universe, and I believe that the way he designed the universe and, and, and the world to be lived, our lives to be lived, the principles that we should operate under according to what he created, that that is truth. Okay, I believe that. So what I say here might come in contradiction to maybe what you believe, and that's fine. But you have to understand that as a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ, and Jesus said that he came from the Father, who is the author of all truth. So we're going to teach it from that perspective. Now, it's interesting. If you read the Bible, did you know that the word truth is found 281 times across 269 verses? So in the Bible, the word truth is found 281 times. That's a lot of times. That's a lot of, a lot of verses that talk about this concept that doesn't exist, right? I mean, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek remark there, but like truth is a very popular topic in the Bible. And I want to talk about three verses from it that talk about it so we can ask this question, what is truth? The first one is John 14, 6, and this is Jesus, the man himself, saying this. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said that. So as Christians, we should be looking to Jesus as the source of our truth. It's funny because I think even people who, who aren't Christians understand this concept. They go, I think it was Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians, right? So, so even Gandhi could look at Jesus and say, this guy's on it. He gets it. He understands that, this, that there is something in there. Now, maybe he didn't recognize the fullness of, of the truth of Jesus, but he even, who wasn't, a, who wasn't a Christian, could see that. And when Jesus gets up and says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, what he's saying is that everything that is true is run through me. He is the source of all of it. And so for us, that's important for us to see that, to, to look at the words of Jesus and just take them at their value, at their face value as true. I think that might come into conflict with what some people might believe. Or maybe they've never considered it that way. Maybe some people go to church because they feel like I need to go somewhere so I can feel better. I, I've heard that a lot, actually, from people who visit the church for the first time. You know, and as we get to know them a little bit, we have a conversation with them. What I hear from people sometimes is, you know, I've just, I started having kids. And I, I thought it would probably be good for me to go to church. Uh, it was good for me. You know, like I should just do that. 
Like, it's going to make me feel better. I'll find a better center in my life. Like, that's what I hear a lot of times from people. And I'm like, okay, that's cool, because we believe in the value of exploring here, right? Exploring faith. But you will never truly understand the fullness of what Jesus is saying unless you make him as the marker of truth. Like, he was the one who flat out said, I am the truth. So he's, he, I mean, that's, that's a very ambitious claim. Either Jesus is wrong, or he's crazy, or he was telling the truth, and that he was the truth. And so I choose to believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe him. I take him at his word. He's changed my life. So now when he says certain things, when I come up with some of, some of the things that Jesus has said that I read in Scripture actually make me bristle a little bit. They go against my nature. They go against what I want. They go against how I feel or, or maybe what I was taught by the world that I live in, right? But when I look at Jesus and he says something, if I trust that he is the truth, well, then I have to trust that he is who he says he is and that his words are right. And so the point here is that Jesus is truth and what he says is the truth. We ask that question, what is truth? The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is truth. But here's another verse in Psalm 119, verses 160. This is, again, David that we talked about uh, who, who in the, the verse that we read in during our worship moment. Right now, he's writing another one, and he says, The very essence of your words, God, is truth. All your just regulations will stand forever. And what this means is that God's word, the Bible, is truth. Now, one of the most, probably the central arguments these days is that this word here, this Bible here, a lot of people would say, I don't know that this is literal. I don't know that it is, um, that it is inerrant. Those are words that people use, that it's figurative, that it's a poem, right? Um, and I'm not here to convince you today whether or not the Bible is what we would consider to be inerrant, okay, or whether it has authority. What I'm trying to say to you is this, and I would ask you to consider this question or just consider this, this point that I'm going to make. If you're reading a passage in the Bible and your first thought is, is that accurate? Is that inerrant? Then you're missing the entire point of the, of the Bible in the first place. It's not about whether or not these word choices or these selections were exactly right from the words of God, were whether or not God was sitting there directing someone's pen on a page. That's not the point. The point is what we just read right here in Psalm 119, 160. The very essence of your words is truth, and all your just regulations will stand forever. And what that means to me is as I read God's word, as I read the Bible, which has been written over thousands of years by men from different eras and different locations and collected together, and they all have the same principles. They all guide together. They all lead to the same place to Jesus. And I read this incredible book years ago called Jesus of Theography that basically takes all the books of the Bible, the Old Testament, all the way to the New Testament, and shows how archaeologically, how theologically, how, um, you know, word plays, how symbolism, how they all all point to Jesus in their own unique way. That does not happen by accident, folks. It's incredible. And so when I read this passage of Scripture and it says that the very essence of your word is truth, what that tells me is that this book is reliable for truth. That as I read it, it speaks to my life on a deeper level than anything else I could ever possibly read. That if I allow it to, to speak to my existence, if I allow it to speak to my, to my beliefs, to the core of my values, to my assumptions about what I think about life, 
If I, if I think about the government that is in play right now, if I think about what's happening in other places, if I think about what's happening in my own neighborhood, and I read the Bible, and it says something to me, and it challenges the way that I think, or I allow it to challenge what I see on the news, that's what the power of truth does. And I can tell you from my own experience that this book has never led me astray, ever. And I love in that song that we just read, or that song that we just sang, that says that you have never failed me yet. I almost don't like the word yet there because it almost like opens the possibility. And maybe that's the beauty of the song and the poem, the poem of it, the poetry of it, is that that as a human being, I still have this this space inside of me that says, but I don't know 100%, maybe you might one day. And I think that God welcomes that. I think he welcomes us to this place of, you don't have to trust me 100% because I know you can't sometimes, but I'm going to be faithful. I will still be there. Your magazines, your news outlets, your governments, they will all fail you at one point, but I will never fail you. I love that. So the very essence of his words are true. So God's word, the Bible is truth. What is truth? We ask that question. Well, Jesus is the truth, and what he says is the truth. God's word, the Bible, is the truth. And interestingly enough, in John chapter 8, our last verse, John 8, verses 31 and 32, this is Jesus himself talking. He says, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. That's interesting. That's not even the point of the verse for me. We have to remain faithful to Jesus' teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Oftentimes we read that verse, or we quote that verse, like, and we usually associate it with when we're like in trouble for something. You know, like, like when you're a kid and you maybe were like telling a fib about something or um, like in court, you know, if you just tell the truth, it'll be better for you. That's the association that we often see with this passage of scripture, right? It's, it's just tell the truth and it'll be better for you. And there is truth there, but that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus started by saying, you are my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. Jesus had already called himself the truth. And then we learned weeks ago about that concept of take my yoke upon you, my teachings, my truth. Take my truth, what he's saying, upon you. Live according to the principles that I have designed life to be. The physics of God's kingdom, if you will, okay? Gravity is a physical concept in our world just as much as the principles of the living the way that Jesus taught us. Those are the physics of his kingdom. He's saying, take upon my truth. And when you do, you will know the truth and it will set you free. When you live according to God's principles, when you put yourself under aligning under his ways of living, even though they go contrary to what you see in society most times, when we live according to his principles, it actually has the effect of being freeing on us. We are not held by the bondage of the problems of our world any longer. No longer do you have to live in fear or doubt. You live in peace and in courage. You, have, you know that, that, you, that you can live your life the way that God created it to be, and you have peace and you have purpose. When you take on the ways of Jesus, the way that God created life to be lived, he says you will live that truth and it will set you free, and no one can hold you captive anymore. I say this all the time. That's how the Coptic Christians who were on the beach who had their heads taken off by ISIS could be singing songs to Jesus just before they were killed. How do they do that? It's because they were free from the fear that held them. They were free from the the structures of this world that try to root them into lies that there are things that, that are better here than outside with him. 
And that's what Jesus is saying is like, my truth takes you beyond what you see and what you can touch and taste and, and, and feel. It will set you free. So what is truth? We asked that question. Pilate asked that question. It was Jesus' truth. What he says is truth. God's word, the Bible, is the truth. And we can know and live the truth by following Jesus' teachings. We can know it. We can, we can actually be carriers of it. It can live inside of us like a lantern, like a, like a beacon. What is truth? We know the truth by knowing the creator of all truth, the creator of the universe. Jesus asserts that knowing him is knowing God, the creator of all truth. And ultimately following his ways, that informs our decisions, it informs our attitudes and our behaviors, and all of it leads to freedom from the bondage that we see in our world. And so this is the big idea. What is this message saying? What do we learn from Pontius Pilate? What do we learn from God's word today? If you're taking notes, write this down. It's our big idea of the day. Without truth, we have no backbone. But with it, we are strong and we are free. Without truth, we cannot stand for something because we will always be pushed over. The wind of the mob will always push us over. We have no backbone if we don't have something to stand on. If we don't stand for anything, we'll stand for nothing. But with truth, when we say, no, this is what I stand on, there is strength there. It's like your feet get rooted in cement and you can't be moved. It's like those trees that, are, that, are, that cannot be blown over by hurricane winds. Without truth, we have no backbone. With it, we are strong and free. Now, let's just look at the juxtaposition between Jesus and Pilate. Pontius Pilate, right, was a man who believed that truth wasn't real. He lived jaded, he lived conflicted, and he was powerless when it counted. Now, let's look at Jesus, a man who was the truth, a man who lived the truth. He was confident, he had peace, and was willing to suffer for what he knew was right and to give it to everyone else. And then, beyond that, his disciples would later exhibit the same freedom because they gave their lives to the truth of Jesus Christ. So without truth, we have no backbone. But with truth, we become empowered. We become strong individuals. Truth does not mean judgment, by the way. When I know something to be right, that does not mean that I can't still hand out grace and mercy to people. And oftentimes we get that confused as Christians. I believe that I know the truth, that the way I live my life and the way that God's word teaches me to live my life is correct. And I want everybody else to know. I want them to know that. But if someone comes to me and says, I just don't believe that, I don't have the right to yell at them and to belittle them and to make them feel stupid. That is not found anywhere in Scripture. Instead, I'm called to live my life. We are called to live our lives with love, with grace, with compassion. To lay our lives down. That's the thing is that Jesus believed what he was doing so much that he was willing to sit there and to die for it. And his disciples did the same. And this is, I think, where the greatest distinction is between them and us. Oftentimes, myself included, is I believe the truth. I want to live the truth. But when my life is on the line... When my reputation is on the line, I'm not willing to, to stand up for it and take the ridicule for it. I'm not willing to, to allow someone to, 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 I'm not willing to put myself on a cross for it. And then innocent people get hurt for it. There are people who deserve, who deserve people to stand up and say, that's wrong. 
and to get involved with it and to be willing to be lumped into something that you, that people, the culture doesn't understand yet. We have to be willing to be truth carriers, truth bringers. We have to be ones who will stand as bastions of truth, not allowing our culture to tell us that there isn't truth. They can believe that if they want, but I will not. I will stand firm and I will say, this is what I believe God's word teaches. Because the essence of these words are the very words of God. I know that we all want to know what is right. I believe that in my heart and in Pontius Pilate's heart, he wanted to do the right thing. I, I mean, we saw that he thought that there was a right thing. This guy's innocent. He doesn't deserve to die. But in the end, he allowed it to happen because of a vacancy of truth in his mind. He had nothing to hold on to. We all want to be strong. We want to make the right decisions. We want to fight against injustice and be a light in the darkness. We want hope and we want life for all of those around us. But first, we each have to understand where the source of it all comes from. Where does truth come from? The truth that drives all of us forward is the principles of life that God has created for us all. So as we close, how can we begin this? How can we begin to, to be that way? I, maybe some of you have aspirations of standing up on a platform and, and, and letting the world know when there are injustices. And I say go for that, but we have to start somewhere. We have these three E's that we talk about here in Encounter. We try to live by these principles. We want to experience God, we want to explore faith, and we want to express publicly. How can we experience the truth of God? The first thing I would say is just give it a shot. Try it out. Maybe some of you right now have read the words of Jesus and you have said, you know what? Like, that sounds great, but I, I haven't tried it yet. You will never experience the benefits of the truth if you've never tried it out. And if there's something that Jesus has said in the word of God that, that rubs you uh, the wrong way or you're not sure you understand it, try it out. Jesus has said that. He said, come and try my way. And I promise you, you will find what you were looking for, but you will never experience what we're talking about here. You will never experience the dramatic life change unless you begin to try out and walk out the words and the principles of Jesus. What about exploring? How can I explore it more? I would encourage you to search for more. Discover it. Uncover it. Look for more truth. Read the words of Jesus. Don't judge him until you have read him. Watch his life. Read the epistles in the New Testament. Look into the Old Testament. Search the scriptures. I believe that, that your spirit inside of you, and if you don't know Jesus, you still have a soul, and you still have something in there that resonates when you hear the truth. You will know it as you read it. Something in your soul will cry out and say, that is truth. Search for more. Explore it. Discover. Uncover truth in God's word. And finally, to express it, you have to apply it to your life. You have to allow the truth of Jesus Christ and his word to inform your values, to allow his word and his truth to inform your, your attitudes, your beliefs, and your behaviors. That's what Jesus said. He said, you will know the truth when you follow my teachings. It's not enough for us to simply say, I like Jesus and I want to be saved by him, to be a disciple, to be a follower, to truly Live a changed and transformed life means allowing it and applying it to your life so that it changes you. Would you all stand with me as we pray? I 
I want to give anyone in the room today who has doesn't know Jesus, has not begun a relationship with him, who is feeling like I have been living a lie and the word of God, what Jesus has said, that he is the truth, that he is the life, he is the way, that you believe that and you want to live that out. If that's you, I just, everybody's eyes closed. If you want to begin a relationship with Jesus today, I just want you to raise your hand real quick so I can pray for you. Anybody in the room who wants to, who wants to know Jesus today. What we're going to do now is we're all going to pray together. We're going to reinforce this together. Maybe you felt like I, I, I'm not ready to lay, raise my hand, but I'm ready to make that move in my heart. And you can just say this with us. We're all going to say it together. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, we're just going to pray this affirming prayer together. So let's just all pray together. Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. Forgive me of my sin. I want to live with you. I want your truth. And I want to live by your truth. I receive you. In your name I pray. Amen. With your eyes still closed, let's all just take a moment right now to seal what God has said into our heart. Evaluate what has he been saying to you. Uniquely, I believe that the Holy Spirit speaks individually to each of us. And some of us, he's challenging us. Some of us, he's, he's, he's calling you to a greater reverence for the authority of his word. For some of you, he's just calling you to explore it deeper and to give it a chance. For some of you, he's saying, it's time for you to begin living the truth and not, not being blown over by the wind of culture. Whatever he might be saying just right now, Father, I want what you want in my life. I want to live by your principles. I want the freedom that you provide, that you offer. I want to experience it. I want peace. And whatever you've spoken to my heart, identify that thing now and just, just give it to him and say, this is what, I'll do it. I will do it. Help me every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond now with worship to God. And we'll come back in just a moment for our giving moment. Let's sing together. Your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands, this is my confidence, you never fail. Your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness is still in your hands. This is my confidence. You never failed me yet. We began this service today by, by declaring that God promises to take care of our circumstances and to bring us through them. That's an, that's an element of holding on to truth. So that's a practical application here, is if there's something in your life, you're making the decision today to say that your promise stands. I believe in your faithfulness, that you will get me through. I believe that I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. That's you speaking out truth that is found in Scripture. Most worship songs, at least the essence of them, come directly out of Scripture verses. And that's part of the importance of worship, is that we are reciting truth. We're speaking it to our souls. I encourage you to do that this week. Maybe read a passage of scripture, find something you like and write it down or put it somewhere and then just look at it all week, speak it out, put it into a song, write a poem about it, write a blog about it, take a picture that 
symbolizes it. Do something that allows you to begin integrating those words into your heart. We're going to move into our giving moment now. We also believe that we worship God by putting him first in our finances. If our service hosts will come forward. We do so many things here as a church, so many different things that are just designed to help people see God in everyday life. We want to encounter him in real life. And giving is just what allows us to do that. We're saying, I am invested. I am a part of this family, of this church family. If you're new here, we are not talking to you. We're not asking anything of you. This is just for those who say, encounter is my home. I believe in what God is doing here. There's easy ways for you to give. The first is just a basket. It's going to come by in a second. Uh, if you prepared a gift to bring today, you can actually take an envelope right in front of your chair and you can write your information on there. That way it can be tax deductible at the end of the year. Just drop it in the basket as it goes by along with your connection cards. Um, if you are new, take your connection card to the lobby at the Connection Center to get your free gift. Um, but the easiest way to give is online at EncounterGiving.com. Um, the vast majority of our church does that. It's super easy and awesome. And uh, you can even set it up as a recurring gift if you'd like to. But let's pray. And then we're going to just finish our service by just singing together as the baskets go around. But uh, don't leave today without saying hello at the Connection Center. If you are new, we want to begin a conversation with you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for how you speak to us and that you are truthful. Thank you that we can rely on you. Thank you for every gift that will be given this morning. Every person who says, I am a part of this, this church and this mission you've given us. I pray that every person who gives will be blessed 10 times over, God. I pray that, pray that you will stretch every gift, that you would make it multiplied like you did with the food and the fish and the bread so that it would go so far so that many more people who are far from you will know your son, Jesus. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together as the baskets go by and we'll close our service. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.